God calls us His holy people to worship. Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done. Sing to Him. Sing praise to Him. Tell of all His wonderful acts. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord in His strength. Seek His face always. Remember the wonders He has done, His miracles and the judgments He pronounced. O descendants of Abraham, His servants. O sons of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever, the word He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. When they were but few in number, few indeed, and strangers in it, they wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. He allowed no one to oppress them. For their sake he rebuked kings. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let's sing hymn number 34 this morning. Our scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 11, picking up in verse 8 and going through verse 19. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Andre, can you come lead us in prayer? As we continue in our series on God's garden in the Bible, we come to a man who dominates the Bible from this point on. Today we'll look at the story of Abraham, the man of faith who is the father of the faithful. The life of Abraham gives us a glimpse in a fuller way than has been revealed up to this point in the Bible of what God seeks from those who live in his garden. The life of Abraham shows us that the priority of God's garden is faith. Faith is the fundamental thing that is at the heart of covenant life in God's presence. It is the fundamental reality. Up to this point in the story of Genesis, we focused on obedience. And this follows the maturity theme that I've been, I've been pressing in this series of God's garden. Adam was pressed for obedience. And the Bible emphasizes that he was a disobedient covenant head. We talked about Enoch, who walked with God, speaking of obedience. We talked about righteous Noah, who was obedient and found grace in the eyes of God. But here we come to Abraham, whose life is defined by faith. And I'm not saying there was no faith with Enoch or not any faith with Noah. I'm saying that the story of Abraham emphasizes the role of faith 
in covenant life. That is why Abraham is so important to Genesis and why Abraham is so important to the rest of the Bible. Genesis is a story of life, spiritual life that comes from the friendship and presence of God. And this is the same theme as we find when we get to the New Testament as well. Jesus said that he came that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. What kind of life is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about spiritual life because everybody that heard him speak was already a living, breathing human being. The life that he came to bring was new life, eternal life, and they needed to be born again. For they were dead in their trespasses and sins and, and did not see life. So that's the big theme of Scripture. As we start in Genesis, we see the emphasis on spiritual life. As we get to the New Testament, the same emphasis that began in Genesis comes to the full end of the story. In fact, I, I want to go back to last week, and I, and, and I missed something last week that I want to present here as well. If you remember, I talked about Eve, the mother of all living, being prophetic of the church, and that she would be the head or the, the mother of all the living in a covenantal sense. And we talked about Cain and Abel manifesting those two lines, Cain being the seed of the serpent and Abel being the the son of the woman, Eve. We see how the the issue of life is actually represented in the genealogies of Cain's genealogy in Genesis chapter 4 and in Seth's genealogy genealogy of chapter 5. Because there's something, as as I talked about last time, you have parallel genealogies there between the two lines, the two covenant lines of Scripture. And there is something very unique about Seth's line that is not existing in Cain's line. You know what that is? Lifespans. Long lifespans only are represented in Seth's line. Cain's line had no lifespans. And there's a reason for that because, again, this is a story of covenant life. Cain's line, cut off from the presence of God, was dead. They had no life in them. Seth's line, in the presence of God, the faithful line, enjoyed covenant life with God. So these themes of life are starting here in Genesis and they pick up steam and we get to the New Testament and that's exactly what Jesus Christ comes to bring. And I hope you can see how these things are all, all fitting into the story. Well, Abraham shows us that the priority of the garden and therefore of true life is faith. And as we see later in the Bible, Abraham becomes the father of all who live by faith, culminating with Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, it may seem strange to you to think that I'm going to do a sermon in my sermon series on God's garden with Abraham because we're like a long ways now from the original Garden of Eden at the very beginning of Genesis. But there is a place in this story where the Garden of Eden is mentioned. I think that's interesting. And what we're going to find out is that everything, virtually everything in the Garden of Eden is going to be present in the story of Abraham and some really neat stuff too as far as the order of the way things happen in Abraham's life and how it tells the story of death, burial, resurrection the way it tells the story of redemption and the way it tells the story of God's faithfulness even in temptation and sin. So Abraham actually experiences his own temptation and learns obedience in the end. So let's take a closer look at Abraham's life and it's going to be more of an overview thing because actually Abraham takes up a lot of space in the book of Genesis. So let's do an overview thing, and I'll point out these themes as they as they manifest themselves in the life of Abraham, beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, uh, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, 
and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so we see very beginning, at the very beginning of the story of Abraham, God's word comes to Abram and he obeys the voice of the Lord. But it also came to Abram with a promise. The command was to leave his country, his family, and go to a place that God would show him. And the promise was that God would make him into a great nation and bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And so we see this pattern of faithfulness right here at the very beginning of the story because immediately Abram Abram listened to the Lord's command and believed God's promise. And that's the essence of faith. Believing God's promises is the essence of faith. Faith is the stuff of relationship. Um, those of you who are bosses at work can understand the difference between obedience, pure soul obedience, and faith. Because you can understand that people will do what they are told because that is what is expected of them. They might obey you in your work situation because that's what, that's what is expected of them, but they may not like you for it. But faith is something a little bit different. How do you have faith in someone apart from relationship with them without being their friend? If you have faith in someone, you're going to obey them, but faith is a deeper thing than mere external obedience. Faith is about friendship. It's about relationship. Because to rely on someone is to really put your trust in them, and that demands a relationship. The reason Abraham plays such a prominent role in Genesis is he represents a fuller demonstration of what living by faith in God means. His faith is at the center of what garden life looks like. And we can see that later in Abraham's story. Look how he responds to a trial in his life in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. This is a second reference to the worship of Abraham, the faithful. And worship really characterizes the faithful. We see that in the life of Abram very, very clearly. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. That's an interesting reference because the children of Israel would be reading the book of Genesis and of course they, they had to deal with, in Moses' day, these particular Canaanite nations. So it's, it's mentioning the fact that they're there surrounded by, uh, surrounding Abraham as well. So this puts a, puts a bigger, fuller picture in the story. Verse 8, So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine. For we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? 
Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, what Abraham suggests to Lot looks like a reasonable and noble thing to do. Abraham is seeking peace here. Abraham is seeking family peace to be a peacemaker in his household. But as a peacemaker, he graciously offers Lot the first choice of the land. And remember, God brought Abraham to the land, and here is he is offering Lot the land. And he gives the first choice of the land to Lot. Now, because we don't read these stories with a Hebraic mindset, these kind of details just sort of like, it's just part of the story, it's no big deal. And they really don't strike us as important. But any faithful Hebrew reading this story would be aghast at what happens in this story. You see, Lot would later become the father of the Ammonites and the Moabites. These two nations would prove to be dangerous enemies of Israel after the Exodus. In fact, the, the Ammonites and the Moabites became an obstacle to the fulfilling, fulfilling of the promise to Moses to give the land to Israel. They're the children of Lot. And so what you have here is Abraham the peacemaker seeking peace in danger of giving away the promised land to the enemies of Israel, to the father of the enemies of Israel. This is very significant in what happens in this story. Abraham was willing to do that because to him, peace was more valuable than possessions. And so he gives Lot the first choice. You choose where you want to go. You go right, I'll go left. You go left, I'll go right. Verse 10. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. See the reference to the Garden of Eden there? Those kinds of things are supposed to bring you back to the story that came before. Now if we are to take this literally, then the text shows us that the writer of Genesis did not view the physical world of the Garden of Eden any differently than the world that Abraham knew. This plain of Jordan was well watered like the Garden of the Lord. So we have this connection here between the experience of Abraham and the garden story back with Adam and Eve. But really, the reason why the garden and the plain of Jordan were special was not because of the physical conditions there. Just like the garden was not special because of the physical conditions there either. The presence and the blessing of God is what made this place special. And what the association here that we have with the garden of the Lord and the story of Abraham is very significant. We'll get to this a little bit later in another sermon, but the Garden of Eden becomes compared to the entire promised land with Israel. We'll get to that in the story. It takes a little while to get there. But the writer of Genesis is making that association right here. The plain of the Jordan, Canaan, that is like the Garden of the Lord. And notice that Lot goes out to the east. That's another detail from the garden. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve when they were kicked out of the garden? Which way did they go? They went out to the east into the wilderness. And Lot continues to travel east to out of Canaan, actually, because we see that even though Abraham offered the land to Lot, Lot decided to go somewhere else. And Abraham lives in the land of Lot. By faith, he understood that God would provide for him no matter which direction Lot would go. And so Lot goes out to the east, just like 
Adam and Eve go out to the east from the garden. And, of course, that's always a very bad indicator. Traveling out to the east is a bad indicator because it's, it's an image of being under the curse, being dominated by the curse. And where does Lot end up? He ends up next to Sodom, where the men are exceedingly wicked. And, of course, this comes to full fruition toward the end of Abraham's story and Lot's story, which we're all very familiar with, with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the idea that Lot saved by the skin of his teeth in that judgment. So there's a lot of stuff going on here with the garden theme. There's a lot of stuff going on here that's bringing you back to the issue of Genesis Garden. And we'll continue in how this works here. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre of Hebron where he built an altar to the Lord. So what you really have here is a temptation of Lot because Lot looked at this great plain and he ended up choosing wrongly to live by Sodom. We have a fall of Lot And because Abraham was seeking peace more than possessions, putting his trust in God, God ends up promising the whole land to Abraham. And that becomes the land promise. Now, as the story goes, we know that Lot found himself in trouble after a while. And Abraham rescued Lot and the other prisoners from the kings along with Sodom. And the story of Melchizedek, king and priest of God the Most High, is a very important detail in chapter 14. It was Melchizedek, the king and priest of God the Most High, who brought bread and wine and blessed Abraham. And this is a very strange story if you think about how small it is in this chapter 14 of Abraham's life and how big it becomes in places like Psalm 110 and in places like Hebrews about you know, Jesus Christ being the priest of the order of Melchizedek. So this little detail here becomes huge later in the Bible, but he was the king of Salem. Salem means peace. He was the king of peace. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Jerusalem. So all of these issues here are related to the idea of Abraham seeking peace and walking faithfully. And you notice in the story, if you read the entire chapter 14, that Melchizedek blesses Abraham for rescuing Lot and defeating the kings that had taken Lot and Sodom into captivity and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything a tithe and so what Abraham is doing here is recognizing by faith that it was God who gave him the victory and so the sacrifice this tithe goes to Melchizedek and at the same time the king of Sodom who was saved by Abraham and Abraham's allies offers Abraham booty from the spoils of war in verse 22 we read that but Abraham said to the king of Sodom I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. To Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them have their share. Again, Abraham chooses to live by faith. He's not looking to be sustained by the wicked of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's looking to be sustained by God himself. And he will not subject himself 
as a covenant father to be in debt to the wicked. That's faith. Recognizing where he plays his role in the covenant and recognizing that God's covenant line is a kingly line not to be put under dominion by the wicked. But up to this point, Abraham has not had a child. Remember the first promise in Haran was, I will make you your name great and make your descendants great. The second promise is in chapter 13. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. And I personally think that this should be translated land, the dust of the land. Um, a lot of people don't realize that in our English, the word earth in English and the word land in English comes from the exact same word in Hebrew, the word eretz. And actually, I think land is a much better translation because you have here the promise that I will make your offspring like the dust of the land foreshadowing when Israel would come into the land and fill the land in, in the promise of God. So I think, personally, I think all of the book of Genesis it would be much better if translators, every time they had the word arrest, they just translated it one way or another, either earth or land. I prefer land, but I think that, that rendering and translation fits better with the promise to come of, of the children of Israel going to fill the land, Canaan. That's what's being spoken of there in that particular context. But up to this point, Abram has had no child, and so how are these promises going to be fulfilled to Abraham? Well, chapter 15 introduces us to the obvious problem that any thoughtful reader is having at this point in the story of Abraham. Chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram, Abram's thinking about all this stuff. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. That's the third time that God promised to give Abram many offspring. And he had faith. text says he had faith. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And of course, Paul draws the parallel to the Gospel in Galatians. Those who believe in Jesus Christ receive the righteousness that is by faith and become the true children or seed of Abraham. So all this stuff is playing a very big role in what's going to happen in the New Testament. We also see in verse 12 another detail that is similar to the garden. Interesting detail. When this covenant was made, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a very deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That's an interesting detail of the story. God's purposes are, are bigger than just Abram. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God was in covenant relationship with the Amorites as well. 
And so this promise to Abraham is in the context of God's wider dealings with the other nations at that time. And notice also, like I said, Abram was falling into a very deep sleep. Where should that take you back to? Back to the garden. Abram is like a new Adam. That's really the imagery there. He's, an, he's going to be a father of a particular covenant family. So we have these connections here, these, these little hints that take us back to the garden and what happened in, in various places back in the early parts of Genesis. Yet even though God is dealing with the Amorites, God is dealing with all the other nations, Abram is on center stage at this point. And chapter 15 says that he believed God's promises even though he was childless. So he's living by faith again. He's believing the promise even though he sees that he has no child. So now we come to a point in Abram's life where he is faced with a great temptation. Just like Adam. This is another temptation just like the garden with Adam. Just like the temptation that Noah faced. Only this is not about the fruit of the tree with Adam or the fruit of the vine with Noah this is about the fruit of the womb this is where the temptation would come for Abraham read chapter 16 verse 1 now Sarai Abram's wife had borne him no children but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar so she said to Abram the Lord has kept me from having children go sleep with my maidservant perhaps I can build a family through her Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. You see what happened there? First of all, Abram, Abram's engaging in polygamy, which was introduced by the line of Cain. That's a bad sign. Second of all, notice whose idea it was. Sarai's idea and Sarai took the temptation to Abram, just like Eve took the fruit of the tree to Adam. And notice that Abram agreed with the woman, just like Adam agreed with the woman. This is a fall of Abram. He did not succeed. He did not succeed the test in God's garden. He fell and sinned. What should have been Abram's response to the woman? He should have reminded Sarai about God's promises and ignored her advice, but he didn't. So we have this temptation and fall of Abram, and the rest of chapter 16 talks about the curse that enters into Abram's family as a result of this sin. And it's a mess. All these things are going on. You've got brothers and sisters. You've got half-brothers, and you've got women at each other's throats blaming Abram. Notice what Sarai says. Then Sarai said in verse 5, Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. See the mess that happens in this curse from this fall? Now it's very important to point out that God did not forsake Abram for good. But there is a gap of time here at the end of chapter 16 the beginning of verse 17 where we have a pure gap of 13 years in the story of the life of Abraham. God's presence was taken from the life of Abraham. Notice in verse 15 of chapter 16, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Very first verse of chapter 17, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. 13 years, yeah. 
Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Grace. Confirming the covenant even with the presence of sin. This is grace. So God comes back and renews the covenant with Abraham. Verse 9 and 10. Then God said to Abraham, you, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And it's also very significant that Abram and Sarai are renamed in chapter 17. Right? They fell. And now, after the fall, after this breaking of the covenant, after the sin, they're renamed. And so we have a picture of redemption here. And we have the covenant of circumcision brought in. The covenant of circumcision is a covenant that symbolizes redemption. Abraham did not enter into this covenant of circumcision until after he fell. And so now with his new life came a new name for both Abram and Sarai. Abraham and Sarah. And it's the same thing when you get into Jewish history. The Hebrews understood that they were not members of God's nation by birth. If a Hebrew male was born to a Jewish woman, he was not a Jew until he was circumcised. So, again, it's not about birth. It's about covenant. It's about blood. So all of this is bound up in seed form in chapter 17. And you also see that Ishmael was born to old Abram and Isaac will be born to Abraham. Ishmael was born in the fall. Isaac was born in redemption. Ishmael would be blessed, but Isaac would be the heir, the seed of the promise. And of course, Bo taught on the significance of this, of Ishmael and Isaac, of Hagar and Sarah last week. We saw this allegory in Paul in Galatians. The Pharisees and the Judaizers who put faith in the works of their own hands correspond to Ishmael and Hagar. And the believers who trust in Christ by faith receive the righteousness that is by faith correspond to Isaac, the true covenant child of Abraham, the, the child of promise. So that story in, verse, in chapter 17 sets up one more story at the end of Abraham's life because Abraham didn't just face one temptation. Notice we have again a repeat of the temptation about Abraham's son. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, Here I am. He replied, Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So now we have another temptation, another test with Abraham about a son, the fruit of the womb. And this time Sarah is not around to step in. In fact, the Bible doesn't even say that Sarah knew what Abraham was going to do or what he was told to do. I can't imagine what Sarah would have done if she had known that Abraham was told to go and sacrifice the child of promise. Can you mothers figure out what she would have done? So Abraham takes charge of his household, obeys God's voice, and does what is commanded by faith. And there's another crucial point not to miss. God calls Isaac, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Is that true? Was Isaac Abraham's only son? What about Ishmael? Isaac is Abraham's only son. God's word is only true if we remember the kind of life that Genesis 
has emphasized over and over and over. It's not biological. Genesis is not biological. Genesis is covenant. And there is only one son of the covenant. Isaac is Abraham's only covenant son. So it shows us once again that the point of the covenant line of God in Genesis has never been defined by biology. From the very beginning of Isaac and Ishmael, the line of Abraham is covenantal. Isaac is the only child of Abraham. Only Isaac can claim to be the child of Eve times 20. The great-grandson of Eve is Isaac. And if you think about it, if Abraham has only one son, then Sarai is a new mother of all the living. Right? That's covenant life. She's another Eve. The story has always been about covenant. Isaac was Abraham's only son, and that statement right there, I don't know why that's so missed by people, but that shows the whole thing is about covenant. There's only one son of Abraham, covenantally. So Abraham succeeded in the second temptation over his child and offered Isaac his only son symbolically as a sacrifice to God. His only son he sacrificed to God. That's how committed he was to living by faith. And he knew that God could raise him from the dead and his faith would define a nation of the faithful to come. So this nation, from the very beginning, was never about physical lineage or physical descent or biology. It was about covenant. Now turn with me to John chapter 8 because I don't think this is anything different than the rest of the Bible. John chapter 8, we have this same discussion going on. Have this discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees about Abraham. And notice who's talking biology and who's talking covenant. John chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have heard in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. Right back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember the promise of the curse? The offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the devil, versus the offspring of the woman, Eve. Here's Jesus calling them covenantally the offspring of the serpent. Right back to the garden. And there's many places where this happens in the New Testament. I'm not even going to go to all of them because we're running a little bit late. But folks, it's not biology that Genesis talks about. Nor is it biology that the New Testament talks about. It's all the same story. All the same story. It's faith. 
from beginning of the Bible to the very end. What did Paul say in Romans 9? It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, says Paul, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who were regarded as Abraham's offspring. Who offered Abraham... Get the big story here. Abraham offered his only son to God. And one day to come, after that, God returned the favor. Because then God offered his only son to Abraham and his children. And the friendship between Abraham's family and God himself would be made complete. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you've done in making us new creatures in Christ. We thank you for calling us sons of God and making us sons of the kingdom. We pray that you would bless us and lead us and guide us in the kingdom that you've put us in. May we have wisdom to see the way of faith in all the details of our lives as well. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.